you're going to wrongfully assume that all the foods you're reacting to are sensitivities that you have to avoid forever, whereas they might just be something that your gut can't tolerate right now, but once we address these underlying root causes, you can tolerate them. You're listening to the Fix Your Gut podcast, a podcast that empowers you to understand why you have gut issues and what to do about it. After over 20 years of suffering with IBS, migraines, and chronic fatigue, I decided to take matters into my own hands and I became a nutritionist so I could not only heal myself, but heal others that were struggling like me. Odds are you're here because you're stuck. Your doctor couldn't help and you've already tried cutting out foods and probiotics. So now what? You don't have to suffer anymore. You can heal your gut. We're going to go beyond diet and supplements to empower you with the knowledge you need to achieve deep, lasting healing and finally enjoy food again and get your life back. Hey guys, we're back for another episode of the Fix Your Gut podcast. And today I want to dive into why your elimination diet didn't work. And on top of that, how to reverse food sensitivities or what you think is a food sensitivity is not actually a food sensitivity. And you'll understand more about what I mean by that shortly. But first I want to talk about why do we use elimination diets? What are they? What's the purpose? And how people generally do it on their own versus how it should be done when you work with a practitioner. So first off, these elimination diets, there's many different uh, theories as to how you should do them, but typically they're having you cut out top allergens. So that would be things like gluten, dairy, soy, corn, um, and peanuts or other nuts. There's others as well, potentially shellfish, um, but just for the sake of simplicity, we'll stick with those guys. And so a lot of people may find that, okay, they cut out these foods, they start to feel better, and they do that for maybe a month or a few months, and then they're finding it's way too restrictive, so they want to be able to try to reincorporate them again. So they start to bring them back, and they notice they have the same problems. So what's going on here? Do they truly have a food sensitivity to these foods and do they have to avoid them for the rest of their life? The answer is probably no, thankfully. But in order to be able to bring those foods back without having symptoms, we have to also at the same time address the underlying causes of why you can't tolerate these foods. So a lot of people just assume, and rightfully so, because we may not know a whole lot about how the gut works, but you might assume that because you're reacting to these foods, maybe you feel bloated or gassy or have pain or heartburn or bloating, that, you know, it is a sensitivity and not saying it's not, it very well could be, but it also is more likely that it's one of these four things or all of the above. Your uh, digestive function of your digestive system is just not working properly. So I call that digestive deficiencies. It's your gut microbiome. So the bacteria and other microbes that live in your gut are out of whack. Your liver and gallbladder aren't functioning properly. Or your nervous system is uh, distressed and you're, you're stuck in that survival fight or flight mode. Oftentimes, it's several of these or all of the above. But this is why it's so incredibly important to work with a practitioner, because if you don't know about these root causes and you don't know what to do about them, you're going to wrongfully assume that all the foods you're reacting to are sensitivities that you have to avoid forever, whereas 
They might just be something that your gut can't tolerate right now, but once we address these underlying root causes, you can tolerate them. And this is exactly what I see with my clients when we work together, uh, typically for at least three months. Some people need a bit longer, but by the time we hit that three months, I'm able to have them bring those foods back in that they were previously reacting to without having any issue. Now, for some people, for example, with gluten, which is one of the more common um, trigger foods, they might be able to tolerate, you know, maybe one serving a day. But if they have any more than that, they notice it's an issue, right? So everyone is different and the time period in which it takes to heal is different and unique to each person. But this is the beautiful thing about doing the, the root cause work and addressing these underlying dysfunctions of the gut and the body to allow you to bring these foods back into your diets. You do not have to avoid them forever. Because let's be real, gluten and dairy and all of these foods that are top allergens are quite delicious. So uh, you should be able to enjoy them without worrying about suffering and paying the consequences, right? Especially if you're on vacation and just want to enjoy yourself, but you don't want to have an upset stomach or feel sick the whole time. Okay, so how do we uh, cut out these foods and be able to bring them back without suffering? So this is where it's a very strategic and personalized process, but I'm going to go through each of these root causes one by one and give you some general insights into when I work with clients, how we address these things. So number one is digestive deficiencies, incredibly common, and this is one of the easier things to treat. So usually this means that you have not enough stomach acid, not enough digestive enzymes, which come from um, your saliva, your small intestine lining, and your pancreas, and or not enough bile, which we'll get into shortly. And that comes from the liver and gallbladder. So we need these things to break down and digest and absorb our food. And if we are not doing that, when that food hits the small intestine and the large intestine undigested, it starts to get fermented and some fermentation is natural. Obviously there's bacteria there, it's going to ferment things, but excessive fermentation by the bacteria causes a lot of gas and bloating and discomfort. So we really have to make sure that we're optimally digesting in our upper gut. So that means chewing thoroughly and having enough stomach acid and enzymes to break these things down before they hit the intestines. So that might mean you want to try a digestive enzyme that has uh, HCL or a betaine HCL hydrochloric acid in it, as well as a broad spectrum enzyme. So some for protein, which are called proteases, some for fats, which are called lipases, and some for carbs, which are called amylases. And sometimes you'll see on there um, pancreatic enzymes. So those are actually pancreatic enzymes taken from um, either pork or cow. Uh, that are very, very potent and can be quite helpful into digesting these foods. So when someone tells me, for example, oh, I think I have a sensitivity to red meat because every time I eat it, I feel really uncomfortable. It sits really heavy and I feel nauseous and, and just can't tolerate it. Uh, it's very, very rare to have a sensitivity or an allergy to something like red meat. So in my mind, right away, I'm thinking they don't have enough enzymes or stomach acid to break down this meat. And red meat can be one of the ones that is harder to digest. Now, if they specifically have issues with meats that are fattier, so whether that's, you know, ground beef or a steak with the fat on the side, 
um, or I don't know, anything that's got a lot of fat on it, ribs, things like that, pulled pork, that tells me that they're having trouble potentially with breaking down protein. So not enough protease enzymes, but also um, with lipase uh, fat digestion. So having enough lipase, but if for fat digestion, it's a little bit different. And this is where we're going to get into the liver gallbladder function. So our gallbladder makes, um, or sorry, our liver makes bile and it is stored in our gallbladder. And these bile acids from bile are super, super important for many things. So without getting too much into it, I want you to understand that the main function that we're going to discuss right now is that bile helps to emulsify or break down fat and help us absorb it. So if you really struggle with feeling uncomfortable after having foods high in fat, uh, typically this is more commonly found foods with saturated fat, like animal fat, then you might have issues with your gallbladder and having enough um, bile coming out of there. This doesn't necessarily mean that you have gallstones. You would know if you had gallstones or having gallstone attacks, it's incredibly painful, but rather that your gallbladder is either not functioning properly, so it's not contracting and squeezing to push out the bile, or the bile has become thick and sludgy, and even though your gallbladder is trying to push it out, it can't come out. So there's a number of things we can do here, and usually this uh, starts with supporting both the liver and the gallbladder. And one of the other things I like to look at with this piece uh, with clients, especially if I know they have you know, a history of high blood sugar and insulin resistance, things like that, is do they also have fatty liver? Fatty liver is becoming increasingly common, and I'm going to do a whole episode on it, but for now I want you to know that it has a thing to do with how much fat you're eating, doesn't mean you're drinking too much, although that doesn't help if you're drinking a lot of alcohol. Um, but the most biggest thing that contributes to fatty liver is imbalanced or chronically high blood sugar. When our blood sugar is high, and also if our insulin is not, uh, our cells are not responsive to insulin, which is the, the key that opens up the cell to allow the sugar to get inside, and the sugar gets inside the cell and the body starts using that for energy to make energy. So if the sugar can't get into the cell to make energy and it's sitting in the bloodstream and every time you eat, it's climbing higher and higher and higher. Eventually the body's like, okay, I have to put this excess sugar and store it somewhere. There's too much sugar in the body or in, in the bloodstream here. It's getting dangerously high and can cause a lot of inflammation and, and problems and damage. So let's take that. And it's a sign that, you know, your body's saying too much sugar means we're having too much calories or nutrition coming in. We don't need to burn all of this fuel. Clearly we have excess. We're going to store it as fat. And yes, some of that might be stored as fat throughout your body, but it also can be stored as fat in your liver. So this is where the problem, it becomes problematic with the high blood sugar. Your body's starting to store those sugars as fat in your liver. And now your liver is not functioning well. So of course, if the liver is what makes the bile and the gallbladder stores it and the liver is not functioning optimally, especially if we're putting other strains on the liver, like taking a lot of medications, drinking a lot of alcohol, um, exposing yourself to a lot of toxins, whether that's in bath and beauty products, uh, pesticides, herbicides in conventional produce, um, you know, environmental toxins. Your liver has to process all of that, right? So if it's getting bogged down and burdened and it can't function properly, it's not going to be able to build that bile for you. So it could be a factor of your liver is burdened and it can't build enough bile, 
or you are making enough bile, but it's become thick and sludgy and can't come out of the gallbladder in response to a meal. Now, why would it become thick and sludgy? It's hard to say. It's a little bit complex, but we know for sure that people that have imbalances and inflammation in the gut, especially the small intestine, so something like SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, these people tend to have inflammation and issues with the surrounding organs of the small intestine. So that would include the pancreas and the liver gallbladder. And so when we have this chronic inflammation. Hey, the holidays are fast approaching. I am super excited and I hope you are too. But I bet you're kind of worried that you're going to have a massive gut flare from eating a piece of pie or some cookies or something that you quote unquote shouldn't be eating with your gut symptoms. I get it. I've been there and it's so stressful because you just want to enjoy yourself and not have to stress about what you're going to eat or what the host is serving. So I put together this amazing uh, happy gut for the holidays guide that has my top tips for surviving holiday dinners without feeling bloated and uncomfortable and self-conscious and actually enjoying yourself. And it includes my top tips um, on like how to eat, what to do to navigate, you know, if you're low FODMAP or gluten-free. It includes amazing recipe guide of uh, gut-friendly, gluten-free cookies, some are nut-free, some are dairy-free, as well as simple meals for busy days. And it includes a supplement guide of specific supplements that I think everyone should have stashed in their purse um, to keep you feeling good. Things like digestive enzymes, my top pick for that, um, what to do or certain supplements to have on hand if you do get a gut flare to stop it in its tracks. So I put all of this together. It's a free guide. I'm so excited to share it with you. Head to the link in the show notes to grab it. And I can't wait for you to dive in. So this inflammation in the small intestine, when we have this too much bacteria there, usually with SIBO, it's not necessarily always bad bacteria per se, but it's bacteria that's not supposed to be there. And it's causing a lot of dysfunction and imbalances in how the small intestine functions and does its job. So it should be fairly sterile in there to allow the body to do the things it needs to do. So we have the acidic food bolus coming from the stomach, into the small intestine, the small intestine cells should be secreting brush border enzymes, so digestive enzymes from the lining of the gut to help digest the food. And then ideally we have the gallbladder squeezing out basic bile, remember that pH scale? So we have acidic food bolus and basic bile, and together it's being neutralized and starting to digest that food. So if everything's functioning optimally, that's the basics of what's going on in there. But when we have this bacterial overgrowth in there, even if it is normal, healthy species like Lactobacillus acidophilus, it can throw things out of whack. And so over time, this can contribute to inflammation and dysfunction of the surrounding organs, including sludgy uh, bile in the gallbladder. So there's a number of things we can do here. And the main one would be, um, I like to use both liver supplements as well as uh, bitters, digestive bitters. So that's an alcohol-based liquid tincture made of certain roots and literally they're bitter herbs that you would take before a meal. And the bitterness of it stimulates your gastric or digestive juices, such as stomach acid, but it also helps to thin out your bile to allow it to be excreted. So you have less discomfort after a fatty meal, but also hopefully optimizing your fat digestion and absorption. So on top of that, 
um, we need to support the liver. So I would use a liver supplement that has certain ingredients to support both phase one and phase two liver detox. So that would look like things like milk thistle, glutathione, vitamin C, methionine, um, yeah, a number of different things that could be in there, turmeric, artichoke, and all of these things are going to support the liver in uh, detoxing uh, and helping it function optimally so that it can make that bile for the gallbladder. So we're both supporting the production of bile and making sure that the bile is nice and thin and able to be, get out of the gallbladder. Now, the other thing here, which I touched on a minute ago, is we might have microbiome imbalances. And these are incredibly common, especially in people um, that have low stomach acid and low bile and also motility issues. So if you've been chronically constipated for quite a while, uh, especially if you've used antibiotics, you have a poor diet um, and all of these things together, we start to develop these gut microbiome imbalances. And that can look like a number of things. So it could be SIBO, which I just mentioned, where that's kind of the normal gut flora, which should be in the lower gut. So the large intestine and colon starts to migrate upward into the small intestine and cause issues. Or it could be you have actual too much of bad bacteria or yeasts or viruses or other issues causing gut inflammation. This is more likely when we have what's called insufficiency dysbiosis, meaning you don't have enough healthy microbes to keep the bad guys under control. Because we always have some microbes that are not what we consider you know, probiotics or healthy bacteria living in the gut. But if we have enough healthy bacteria in there, it helps to keep them in check and prevent them from growing, um, getting into higher numbers where they're gonna cause an issue. But when we disrupt that delicate balance, that ecosystem with something like an antibiotic, that can cause really severe consequences or even a restricted uh, diet, for example, where you're not getting enough fiber or a variety of foods to feed healthy bacteria and they start to dwindle off. These what we call opportunistic microbes, so ones that are not so healthy, but are usually there in lower numbers, start to take advantage of that situation. Oh, there's no one here to, to keep tabs on me, kind of like inmates, right? The security guards are gone. Um, there's no one here to keep tabs on me. I'm going to break out and I'm going to go crazy. And that's when they start to grow and cause inflammation and gut dysfunction. So there's a number of different situations we can have in the gut, uh, what we call dysbiosis as a general term, kind of encompasses all of these types of imbalances. But what I want you to know is that when you're, once your gut gets to that place, you are probably going to be reacting to almost everything you eat, especially things that are top allergens or are hard to digest, like gluten, like dairy, um, like foods higher in fat. And so, Assuming that when you eat something and you feel unwell, that it's an, a sensitivity is really an oversimplification and unlikely, especially if you have all of these other things going on. However, I will say as a side note here, if you have long-term gut imbalances or dysbiosis, you probably also have leaky gut, which means the cells of your intestine have become, um, they're not as tight and these tight junctions between them have become a little bit looser. And now you have microscopic particles of food, bacterial toxins or bacteria themselves leaking into the bloodstream and mounting an immune or inflammatory response. 
when that happens, not only are you having a lot of inflammation in the body, and that can contribute to a whole host of symptoms like brain fog and fatigue and aches and pains and headaches, but also um, you are more likely to develop a true food sensitivity because your body is seeing these particles of food in the bloodstream where it's not supposed to be. And it's a, whoa, this should not be here. We have to attack this and flag it for next time. It's an invader. And so it tends to be the foods that we eat the most often. And in our North American culture, that's a lot of dairy, meat, and um, uh, what do you call it? Gluten or carbs, right? That because they're constantly leaking into the bloodstream with leaky gut, we're more likely to mount uh, a sensitivity to them. So all of that aside, assuming that it's not a sensitivity, um, first of all, if it is a sensitivity, by the time we heal your gut and heal the leaky gut and regulate your immune system again, we can actually reverse sensitivities. However, the reason, a more common reason that you may be quote unquote reacting to some of these foods is not that it's a sensitivity, but it's because again, you can't digest it. But also um, if you've heard of low FODMAP diet, FODMAPs are fermentable carbs that exist in all kinds of foods. And it stands for different categories of FODMAP. So, um, one is fructans, oligosaccharides, disaccharides. Basically, they're just big words to say different types of sugars or fermentable carbs that are found in foods. And in that, that FODMAP group, we have things like lactose from dairy. We have gluten and wheat. Um, we have things like onion and garlic, broccoli, cauliflower, apples, kale. If these are some of the foods that you're reacting to, especially the fruits and vegetables, way less likely to be a sensitivity and much more likely to be that your gut is um, reacting to the, the, the fermentable carbs and having a lot of excess fermentation, gas, bloating, that can even contribute to things like diarrhea. So yes, temporarily, you may have to reduce these high FODMAP foods. However, I don't recommend people are super strict with it because it is, can be a very restrictive diet. But once we, um, when I work with clients and we temporarily reduce FODMAPs, we're also working on these underlying root causes, which we just discussed, like the digestive deficiencies, the gut microbiome, liver, gallbladder, and when we haven't touched on the nervous system. And when we do that, eventually between one and three months later, they're able to bring these high FODMAP foods back in without having issues. So to me, a red flag is if someone says, oh yeah, I think I'm sensitive to onion, garlic. I really react to broccoli and apple. I just have to cut them all out. It gives me such gut pain. To me, I say, I think right away, those are high FODMAP foods. Very unlikely that it's a sensitivity with those type of foods and much more likely that is a FODMAP issue due to their gut microbiome imbalances. So it's a very positive thing because we can work on that and get you to a place where you can tolerate these foods. Okay, so what exactly do I do to help people balance out their gut microbiome? And we talked about liver gallbladder, but I do also want to talk about nervous system before we finish up this episode. Now, I don't want to go into all the specifics too much detail because I have covered this a lot before on the podcast. But generally speaking, when we're working on the gut microbiome, it's a four step or four R protocol. And typically, unless someone has used a lot of antibiotics in the recent future or recent history, um, what I want to do is use an antimicrobial supplement. 
Now that means something that is going to kill off not just bacteria, but also yeasts and potentially parasites as well. However, the one that I choose is going to be very specific based on what I think is going on. So if I suspect they have SIBO, I'm going to use very different supplement versus if I suspect they have uh, large intestine fungal overgrowth or something like that, because different types of herbs or antimicrobial substances target different microbes. Now, we do need to use an antimicrobial, but it does need to be done in a very specific way. Um, and very, I like to start very slow and gentle with people because you can get what's called die off where you feel quite unwell. Um, you end up with, you know, you might feel kind of hungover. So headaches, nausea, indigestion, um, brain fog, changes in mood, excess bloating, um, diarrhea, constipation. And so we don't want it to be too disruptive to your life. And so I often prescribe other things at the same time, as well as encourage people to do things that support their body in detoxing these microbial toxins that are released when we start taking an antimicrobial. So that's why we're also at the same time want to support liver gallbladder, because we know that liver gallbladder helps us detox the toxins that are released by these microbes. We want to be sweating as much as possible. We want to stay hydrated. We want to move the body. We want to do things like Epsom salt baths, anything to help flush the system to get those toxins out. And some people that are very sensitive or have an underlying inflammatory condition, severe allergies or autoimmunity, I also use certain supplements to uh, dampen the inflammatory process so that they're not feeling unwell when this happens. So that being said, um, it is a very specific and individualized process and just running out and grabbing oil of oregano or some random antimicrobial you find at the store might help, but it might make you feel worse too, or it might not do anything at all. <laughs> so this is where gut healing is very specific to the person and their individual needs based on what's going on in their gut. And I really, really encourage you to work with a practitioner like myself to address these underlying root causes, because I have been where you are. And when you try to stay on a long-term, super restrictive diet, you know, that's low in fiber because fiber is triggering you, or it's um, gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, grain-free, that becomes really restrictive and takes a toll not only on your physical health, but your mental health as well. And it actually ends up setting you back in your healing journey. So while you may have a bit less bloating or, or digestive distress, the stress that it's putting on the rest of your system is worse and it's going to set you back from healing. So really something to take into consideration. And I hope this episode gives you some hope that just because you've tried an elimination diet before and it didn't work, doesn't mean that all hope is lost. It doesn't mean you have to avoid these foods forever. It does mean that you have to address those underlying root causes and as well as, you know, work on things like your nervous system. So this is the final piece that is really critical that I'd say is probably the number one thing that my clients are most um, resistant to changing, but also the number one thing, especially in my own journey that I found has been the most critical factor for healing. And this is especially important if you have um, mental health concerns as well, if you have things like insom insomnia and chronic pain that is going along with your gut issues. Now, when we talk about regulating the nervous system, 
what this means is learning to shift your body out of the fight or flight stress state or survival mode and into the rest and digest or what we call parasympathetic relaxed state. And that's where healing happens. And one of the reasons this is so crucial for gut healing is because when we are in that stress state, our brain is sending signals through our vagus nerve to our gut that things are not okay. For some people, this results in constipation and bloating. For other people, it can cause diarrhea or maybe it's just bloating and gas. Whatever it does for you, knowing that when you have a symptom flare up, it's important to keep in mind, you know, oh, I'm going to blame this. I ate this, um, you know, sandwich with some cheese on it for lunch. It must have been the cheese. Everything else was safe. It's my normal diet. Only thing that changes, I had cheese. Of course, I have this gut flare up. Why did I do that? And beat yourself up, right? But also, what was going on in your day? What was your stress level like before you ate that lunch? If you had a really stressful morning at work, odds are your digestive system was shut down. And so anything you put into it at that point, even water, it will not tolerate very well. It's going to give you gas and bloating and pain because your brain is literally sending signals to the gut that we are not okay. We are in survival mode. Digestion is not important right now. We're going to shut it down so we can save all our resources to run from danger. Okay. So obviously we can't avoid stress. And I tell this to my clients all the time. I don't expect people to try to like quit their job and go live on a mountaintop and dedicate their life to meditation. Right. What I do expect is that they learn to practice mindfulness and add some of these um, techniques into their day. Some of these simple practices. So for example, checking in with yourself throughout the day. Something I've done is set a, an alarm reminder every two hours on my phone. And it literally just says, breathe. That is a sign to me to, even if I can't stop what I'm physically doing, I can check in with my body. How am I feeling? I'm feeling tense. I'm feeling anxious. Okay, let's take three deep breaths, three big belly breaths where I fill up my belly and sigh it out and do that three times until I get to a place where I feel more calm. Almost every time, almost instantly, my gut will start to gurgle and my digestive system will calm down. That's a sign that your nervous system is shifting into parasympathetic mode. So again, it doesn't take much. It's just checking in with yourself, being mindful of how you feel throughout the day, especially before you eat something and practicing something as simple as deep breathing. Or if you really want to get into something like meditation, a guided meditation, which you can find lots of on Spotify and YouTube, you can try that uh, before bed for five or 10 minutes. It makes a huge difference, especially if you're like me and you struggle with insomnia. Doing a guided meditation or even some breath work and stretching before bed really helps calm the nervous system. And again, you'll know it's working when your gut starts rumbling and calming down and feeling more settled. So I hope this kind of gave you some hope that, you know, you will be able to reintroduce some of those foods that you're reacting to right now. But it will take consistency and addressing those root causes and a very systematic approach. And this is why kind of DIYing it and trying this and trying that on your own. I don't recommend that because we don't often know exactly what needs to be done, right? If you're not a trained practitioner. And so when I did this on my own, before I became a nutritionist, it took me over 10 years. And that was also when I was seeing some practitioners here and there, but I also kept doing my own thing and, and trying this and trying that. And that's why it took me so long to heal 
And the biggest piece that was missing for me, as I have to reiterate, is my nervous system. Having always struggled with depression and anxiety, because that wasn't under control and I was still having a great deal of anxiety, that was the main reason that I was not able to get my gut to a good place. And so I really, really hope this has inspired you not just to be strict with your food and take your supplements, but to be mindful of how you feel throughout the day, check in with yourself and work on that nervous system regulation piece, which is so incredibly critical um, and also helps you have less anxiety around food, right? When you're like, hey, yeah, I felt gross after lunch, but I was also really stressed this morning. So maybe I'm not sensitive to what I ate. Maybe it's just that my digestive system was shut down, right? So it gives you much less anxiety and fear of food because when you get into that mind space of, oh my God, if I eat this, I'm going to be so sick after I shouldn't do it, but I really want to have it. And it looks really yummy. And all my friends are having it. It's this inner dialogue that you're literally telling your cells and telling your gut that you're going to feel sick. And so of course you're going to feel sick. Your brain is sending those signals. I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be bloated. I'm going to be in pain. So even if you ate something that is quote unquote, a safe food for you, you probably would still feel sick after because your brain is incredibly powerful. So also checking in with yourself to examine the thoughts you have about food throughout the day. So are you constantly fearing things, everything you eat? Or do you always tell yourself, you know, when I go to a restaurant, no matter what I have, I'm going to feel sick because it has happened before, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen this time, right? Especially if you're implementing some of the strategies we talked about today. That's it for me. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I hope you found it helpful and make sure that you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any new episodes. If you really love the show, be sure to share the episode on social or leave a rating and review in your podcast app. If you're a longtime listener, you know what's up. I'll be back soon with another episode of the Fix Your Gut podcast with more science-based, digestible strategies for root cause gut healing so you can get your life back and enjoy food again. Chat soon.